Love the old rugged cross. What a fantastic song. If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. So good to be here with you all again on a Sunday morning to consider afresh and anew what John has to say to us. It's, I think, interesting to note uh, the way that each biblical author has their own style. Uh, It's a testament to the way that God uses each one of us in His own way and His own time. Because in the Word of God, as we understand, He has inspired the writers, John and, and Paul, He hasn't done so in a mechanical way, but rather an organic one, using their personalities and the way that they would write and the way that they would speak. I've often thought about the differences in writing style between John and Paul. Paul is more direct and straightforward and linear. John is the consummate poet. Paul might argue, well, I write the way that I do because I just want to be understood clearly. And John would say, well, good luck with that. Wait till you see what they do with Romans chapter 9 and half of what you write. (laughs) John says, There's going to always be misinterpretation. I want to express the truth in beauty and winsomely. John is the one that is known for making statements that that have brought on a lot of misunderstanding. Um, He says things like 1 John 2 and verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And that has been used uh, in the direction of universalism, which isn't what... Uh, John meant to say, but he's writing poetically there. Uh, in second chapter also, verse 18, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And many people have speculated about that. Well, I think that if Paul were to um, be looking over the shoulder of John, as he writes verse 16 and 17 that we'll deal with today, Paul might say in a very Reagan-esque type way, well, there you go again, John. Um, Because this is another passage that draws a lot of speculation, and we all know that when we interpret our Bible speculatively, uh, we land in a lot of interpretive error. I think what John and Paul would say in unison this morning is that what, what they have written, what we have written, is not meant to be used for bumper stickers uh, and for t-shirt sales and to merely be proof text. You must take what we write in context of how we've written it. You may take it, uh, must take it as a whole. And so, beloved, I invite you this morning to stand and do honor to the reading of God's Word as we take verses 16 and 17 in light of their context. John writing here under the inspiration of Almighty God, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, 
he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit the sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. This is the Word of God to you and I. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence and we thank you for this Word. Would you do what only you can do and write its truth upon all of our hearts, not in a way that we merely have understanding, but that we would live and grow thereby. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Now we have to remember what has been said here and what John wants us to know in this context. He wants us to know that we belong to God. That we can be confident when we go before the throne of God. He wants us to know that our prayer for sanctification in our own lives and in the lives of others will be answered. That if we pray according to the will of God for the purposes of God in the sanctification of the saints, that, beloved, it will come to pass and one day we will be glorified before the throne of mercy. John here is a poet, again, moving fluidly like, uh, like a rower from one thing to the next, just on and on and on. And here he moves to the next thing, which he, in fact, has already told us in chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, and God has loved us, beloved, we also ought to love one another. In, in verses 16 and 17, he makes clear what he means by that ought to love one another in a very practical way. And that practical way is this, that we ought to be praying for one another. We must love God with all that we are, and we must carry our brothers and sisters along in prayer. John has written to us just in a few verses, and I can't wait to get there. Uh, I've been busting at the seams for months now. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John knows the world as it is. This is a world that is full of dangers, toils, and snares. And we must seek to walk in the light. We must seek to walk in the truth. We must guard the commandments of God because God is in the light. We must be concerned that we don't fall into sin ourselves. But what John is telling us in verses 16 and 17 is not only should we be concerned with our own lives, but we must also be concerned with the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And beloved, this is what the entire New Testament is about. It's about God redeeming a people for His own glory and calling those people together in such a way that we no longer look just at the individuals that we are related to by blood as our family. But in fact, that we look to one another who are united by the blood of Christ as genuine family members. People that we love and are concerned about. Individuals that really are on our hearts constantly. And when this member hurts, I hurt. We're not a disassociated group of people who come together for like a political rally for something that we want to get done. We are a group of people who are bought by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, John invites us in and says, 
beloved. In fact, I think it's more than just he says. I think what he's giving us here is a marvelous promise in verse 16 when he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to to death, he shall ask. It says he shall ask. It doesn't say he shall gossip. Some of your Baptist translations, I think, read that way. Um, He shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. And the question, of course, that we have to answer in the context of this verse is what is meant by a sin to death and the sin that leads, or a sin that doesn't lead to death and the sin that does lead to death? Well, again, we must look at what is being said here. Too often these passages are interpreted outside of their inspired context. We have to remember that we are being uh, given a summary and that John is saying he wants us to know that we belong to God, that we can be confident before the throne, that he wants us to know that as we pray to God, our prayers will be answered. We have to remember the context is that of prayer and that prayer that is offered in the Spirit of the living God for the glory of God is not an uncertainty but is something that will be answered. It's something that will be granted. John is saying you must look after one another. If you see one fall into sin, you must pray. We are to realize again our brothers and sisters in Christ and we are to pray confidently from our core seeking the good of our brother, our sister in Christ. And when we see a brother or sister in Christ sinning willfully, openly, maybe it's pride, maybe arrogance, whatever the issue is, our response is not to be, well look at their sin, boy that's a mess. Or not to go out to lunch and have a conversation with the family about how godly our family is and how awful the other family is. Because the reality is when we start in those conversations, what we're exposing is our own spiritual infancy in not realizing that that other family is part of our family by the blood of Christ. And you don't have to like it. You just have to realize that your response matters. Uh, what uh, what, uh, What I think we understand is as Christians here, is that when we see another brother or sister in Christ who falls into sin, it really does two things. One, it brings reproach against the Gospel. Sin matters in the scope of our testimony to a lost and dying world. There's nothing that is insignificant in our life of sin. And, and when we see a brother or sister in Christ who is walking in sin, we, we, we Note, as Christians, well, that will bring reproach uh, upon the gospel. It also grieves us if we really are in Christ because we genuinely ought to love one another. We will be broken because we know that that person is not walking with God in that particular area of his life. We know that that individual is bringing unhappiness into his or her Life And he possibly, or she possibly, because she's sinning, stands in the place where she will receive or he will receive the chastisement of God. You'll remember, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And you'll remember back to Ephesians when we were there years ago, 
That what Paul is saying, what he is teaching, that don't grieve the Spirit of God because God is immutable and if walking in holiness and righteousness is here, you swerve from the path and you start sinning. The wrath of God has always been over there. And when you sin, you bring yourself under the chastisement of God. It's not that God lashes out at you in anger. It's that you've taken yourself into a place where you deserve the wrath of God. And so when we see a brother or sister in Christ who is sinning, it should grip our hearts because we know they are going in a direction that potentially will bring them to chastisement. And we don't glory in that. We tremble. Because we realize without the grace of God working in our own lives, we would follow. So one, we, we don't take sin lightly in the lives of others. We also are not just merely indifferent as Christians. And this is what I find when it, it, too often, in my own heart and in the body, when we see someone sinning, well, I guess he'll, he or she will get what they deserve. But friends, we have to have an attitude that's broken, that, that, that realizes the weight of the sin of another individual. At Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul writing, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What greater burden do we have than to kill sin in our lives? Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. And of course, Paul goes on in that lengthy passage to talk about the reality that Christ didn't think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant. Christ didn't consider Himself beloved when He walked on this earth. Do you know who He considered? The glory of God in you. So when you see a brother or sister in Christ sinning, you are called to pray for them. I think if there's one way or expression, response to to sin in the church today, it's flippancy. Well, if so-and-so chooses to sin in this way, what business is it of mine? I'm not called to judge. That's absolute hogwash. God has given you His Word that you would understand what sin is and that in a humble, loving way, you would be able to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ that they would be strengthened by the Spirit of God. Not, and here we're not talking about the kind of religion where when we see someone sinning, we just bash them over the head and say, you're wrong, repent. The reflex here is not first to trust in our own ability to fix our brothers and sisters in Christ. The glorious thing of verse 16 is that what John is driving at is, beloved, when you see that brother or sister sinning, you go to God about it. The first place that you go is you cry out to God and you ask that God would work in that person's heart. We know ultimately that it's ridiculous to have this flippant, well, everybody can just live however they want because of one word that we find here. And that is the word ask. You know, the reality of all of the modern Christians who want to say, well, all sin is sin and it's none of my business and, and we shouldn't worry if you sin this way and I sin that way. Who cares? I promise you this. That mentality never asks. That mentality never takes the brother or sister who is willfully sinning and and, and lifts them before God in prayer. 
That mentality never is grieved by the reality that one who is bought by the blood of Christ is buying into the lies of Satan. And so here we have a reminder in this one word that we should ask. And this is not merely go and mumble for a little while before the throne about this person's sin or gripe about it. This word ask really has urgency. It means to beseech or to urgently plead to agonize over to not cease going before God and asking that these people who have sinned in a way that is not leading to death would be restored. We must always then, as a first principle, when we see one another sin, pray for one another. And friends, I want to encourage you. I think one of the things that happens so quickly with, with our stony, rotten hearts is that if we don't remember this passage, if we don't remember this encouragement, when we see other people sin, we either become cold and indifferent and we don't care, or we become bitter. But in light of this text, we don't have to go down either of those roads. We can go before the throne of grace and know that God hears our prayers through the blood of Christ and that He will respond sovereignly, bringing all of His children home, and He will sanctify them according to His own will. Isn't that a joy? Secondly, to to know this passage well and to understand it, we must understand the nature of of sin. And John introduces here some qualifications again that I've already mentioned that are difficult. He says, if anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, now we're going to have to know what that means. We're going to have to know that qualification. Then he shall ask and God will give him life to him who commits sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. Well, uh uh-oh. Oh, we need to know what that is. I, don't, I do not say that we should pray for that. All we're all doing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. So what, what do we do with these phrases, with these terms? What I've heard a lot is people saying, well, I know what the sin leading to death is. If, it's, if you're cheating on your taxes. Or it will go down a whole litany or a whole list of things that are really big, high-handed sins. And I hope by the time we're done, you'll see how foolish that is. Uh, What we need to do is establish an understanding of some principles of, of, of how we understand sin. The first thing that we can agree on here is what is found in verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin. Anything that does not conform to the standard of Christ is sin. Anything that takes us from the will of God, anything that causes us or another to stumble, to miss the mark of living before the Lord in holiness and righteousness is sin. And John is being again so poetic here. Because he's writing against a background of antinomianism and perfectionism. Of a a mindset of the perfectionist that says, well, because I'm in Christ, look at how great I am. I put on Sunday morning clothes and I don't sin anymore. And John says, that's nonsense. Don't ever believe that person because all wrongdoing is sin. Or or then there's that, that other individual who says, and this is, I believe, more indicative of the modernist, who says, Well, because I'm in Christ, how I live my life no longer matters. And I can live according to whatever I feel like. And ultimately, the law has the commands of God have no sway over me anymore. And John pipes up and says, all wrongdoing 
is sin. All of it is ultimately under the banner of falling short of the glory of God. John wants us to know that we shouldn't listen to that type of thinking. And friends, I think one of the things that we can learn just in that one little phrase, all wrongdoing is sin, this is inspired by Almighty God, and John doesn't say here all wrongdoing is merely weakness. It's indiscretion. It's an oops. He doesn't do what we do. We come up with words that lighten uh, what it means to have sinned. I remember years ago, I think it was, and I'm not picking on him, but Jonathan Edwards in his presidential campaign or thereafter came out that he was having an affair. And uh, I think the, the word that was used was that he was having a liaison. What? You see what we do? I mean, even affair is an ali- a, a lightened word. And that's what we do as sinners. It's not that big of a deal. And John is saying, no, all wrongdoing before the face of a holy God is a big problem. It separates you. And that's what we come to next as a principle. All sin interferes with our fellowship with God. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. He's talking about spiritual life, spiritual renewal there. Remember, John is writing for our joy. Joy that is found where? It's found in fellowship with God. And this sin, not leading to death, is serious because it interferes with that intimate relationship. Beloved, you can sin egregiously as a Christian. And we do. And you, you ultimately, if you're in Christ, God will chasten you and, and bring you back to Himself. But you can't sin and it not affect you. You can't sin and it not cause a, a, a disruption in your joy, your fellowship with God. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. This is the message that you have heard from Him. And that we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Have you ever felt the icy chill of sin relationally? Think about it for a minute. When we sin, it distances us from the individual that we've sinned against. You know, you... Parents, you've experienced this. You tell your children not to do something. Or maybe you don't even tell them. It's one of those things where they go color on the wall somewhere. And you walk into the room, and this child that was all bubbly and, and, and like at your feet, all of a sudden wants to go in the corner and not talk to you. Or, or is just silent. And there's this eerie stillness about your relationship. What in the world have you done? I sent my wife a text message earlier this week. I said, baby, how's your day going? She said, it's going great. I said, do you love me? She responded, what did you do? (laughs) And I said, I haven't done anything. She said, okay, fine, what do you want? And I'm like, come on. And we had the conversation about what I wanted. Um, But there is that icy chill. Adam and Eve in the garden, when we see the first sin, when we see the fall, what do they do? They, They hide. 
Because there is this icy... Remember this. When you are tempted, remember there may be pleasure in that sin for a season, but afterwards comes the icy relational chill. The reality that your joy will be suffocated at least for a season. There's a chill that comes to my heart when I hear people who claim the name of Christ say that they can live for sexual immorality proudly in our generation or they can do whatever because what the church has preached is just outmoded and outdated and and we can live in a way that we sin boldly and openly and without repentance and then they will invoke this and God still loves me and I I feel so great about my relationship with God friends that is not the God of the Bible To sin egregiously, uh, openly, and and unrepentantly in the face of the correction of God and not to, to feel the iciness in the relationship means that you have set up a God for your own making. And that should cause us all to pause and to think about our own walk with the Lord and, and, and our own sin life. And, and really it should cause us to rejoice in this. That we have had brothers and sisters in Christ who have prayed for our sanctification beyond uh, those, those sins that we would grow. All sin, ultimately, I think this is important also as a principle, all sin leads to physical death. Some pridefully will look out over people who pass away uh, unexpectedly, and they wonder, well, did they sin their way? And we do see that God in His chastisement, even with His children, can uh, extinguish life prematurely because of unrepentant, willful, continuous sin. Uh, but there's this way of going, well, I bet you God just got that person. And I just, when I hear that kind of stuff, I think, you know what? All sin leads to death. Your sin's going to kill you too. Just wait a few minutes. It's a matter of time. Uh, let's not be arrogant about the fact that sin leads to death because 100% of people in this room are going to die because of sin. Uh, When I work at the hospital and I have to call the JP and they ask, what is the cause of death? I've never done it, but I always think in my head, they sin. (laughs) They're looking for the more approximate mode of death. But they don't ask a theologian the cause of death. Um, But that's the reality in our life. All sin, every sin, leads to physical death. Friends, your sin will kill you physically. Then he says, here it is, there is sin that leads to death. So what is this? And we're not going to go over all of the different speculations about this this particular phrase at length because they're endless. Some say that this is the lack of self-examination that Paul encourages at the Lord's table that you must... The reason so many of you are sick and dying is because you're, you're, you're coming to the Lord's table wrong and you must be uh, introspective and examine yourselves and that must be the sin that leads to death. Some say that uh, what is being spoken of here is physical death. That, that there is a sin that leads to physical death. I think that's absolute nonsense. Because when John is talking about praying for the brother who has sinned and God will give him life, he's not talking about physical life. He's talking about spiritual 
life. He's saying when you see a brother or sister in Christ who has sinned, who has broken their fellowship with God and is going their own way, you pray for that individual, not because he will revive them and give them uh, their, their heart to beat again. That person can go off in sin and they're still alive physically. What he's saying, give him life, is that that individual will come back to life in Christ. That individual will begin to walk with the Lord and have joy in the Lord. And that is what you are praying for. So the contrast doesn't hold. He's, he's talking about spiritual life when he says we should pray for our brother. And so we can't pivot and, and be consistent in our hermeneutic and say that this is talking about physical death. He's obviously talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. Again, we're told to pray for the brother who has not sinned to death. John says there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that we should pray for that. So if sinning to death is physical death, how do I know who to pray for if the person hasn't died? Does that make sense? Clearly, this speaks of a spiritual reality. The sin unto death here is ultimately not something. Remember, John is summarizing here. So in his conclusion, as he has said everything theologically that he's been saying, and then he comes to say that there is a sin leading to death, he hasn't dealt with that in the physical sense to this point in his letter. What he has dealt with is the reality that there are many people who will come into the body. They will make professions of faith. They will say that they know God, but then they will contort the truth about Jesus and they will eventually prove themselves to be apostates. He's summarizing here, I believe, chapter 4, verses 1 and 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, but this you, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. And then he goes on to say in chapter 2, earlier he says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may become plain that they, all, that they all are not of us. And here is a key verse that I believe in context when we're trying to figure out this sin to death that we need to understand. He, he, he talks about these people that have gone out. These people that sat at our tables and prayed with us and we raised our children together and, and we've gone through all of these things and, and, and all of a sudden, they're gone. And they, they're, they're gone in a way that they no longer profess Christ as Lord. Or maybe they're, they're, they're obscuring the, the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. And we ask the question then, what is the difference between those who have gone out and no longer are among us and those who are still among us? And John answers that question in verse 20 of chapter 2. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. 
The reason why you haven't gone out from among us is because it is the Spirit of God Himself who has instructed your heart in all of the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the sin unto death is done by those who have not been anointed by the Holy One. They have not learned Christ. They have not turned in repentant faith. And so what do they do in time? They get irritated because they don't get their way. They have an agenda, whatever the issue is, and they leave the church. And ultimately, they leave in a prideful, braggadocious way, denying the doctrine concerning that Christ is the very Son of God. I believe that what he's talking about here is the same thing that is dealt with in Matthew chapter 12, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. It is the willful rejection of the teaching of the Holy Spirit as to the true nature of the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ. The denying of Christ and His true nature. And remember, the Gnostics were guilty of this. They were saying that, that ultimately uh, material things are bad, physical or spiritual things are good. Jesus was really not a man. He was a phantom spirit. And so they were messing with the doctrine of Christ. And John is saying those people have been taught doctrine about the person and the work of Christ and they are willfully rejecting the truth. They are sinning unto death against Christ. So the question is, who does this? And who does this is not unbelievers in general. Because this is talking about a willful sin. And unbelievers are not willful. They are ignorant and blind. There are many people today, are there not, beloved, who don't see Christ as Savior. Who don't see that Jesus is who He says He is. And in their lost condition, the reason, Paul tells us, is because there is a veil still over their mind. Their their minds are darkened in their understanding. They don't have a right conception of who Jesus is. But these people who sin unto death are individuals like the Pharisees, people who claim to have had knowledge and insight, people who have been taught and who have claimed to receive, and yet they have no Christ. They reject clear doctrine about Jesus and His person and His work. If I were to ask John, I think this is a good way to interpret the sin leading to death. Brother John, you and I are not guilty of the sin leading to death, right? I think he would say, right. And I would say, well, what separates you and I from those who have, who have committed and are committing the sin that leads to death? And he would probably scrunch up his head and say, well, I started off by talking about the delineation between us and the rest of the world. Don't you remember? Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. 
so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. He would say the reason that I have not sinned the sin leading to death is because I have been anointed by the Holy One. My mind has been opened. I realize who Jesus is. I turn to Him in faith and repentance. And I have been sealed by the power of the Spirit of Almighty God. And I have not sinned unto death. He's really dealt with this who, in verse 10 of chapter 5. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. Friends, there's one last thing. Principle that I think we need to understand in interpreting this verse rightly and looking at the sin leading to death and realizing what it is. And that is to lean in and think about the nature of sin. And this is what I want you to believe with everything in you if you believe nothing else I've said today. Sin has no power over Christ. He is the vanquisher of the sin of His people. Sin does not lord over Jesus. Jesus holds all authority over sin. I knelt by the bed of a dying man this week and he looked me in the eye. And after a few moments of awkward silence, he said, Pastor, I need to have an answer to a question. I said, okay, what's that question? He said, I have killed people and laughed while I did it. Can God forgive that sin? And in that moment, I felt like I know there's a liar behind this question. And the lie of Satan in this question is there are sins that Christ is unable to forgive. And it was an icy, chilled moment for sure. I remember thinking, keep a straight face because this individual needs to understand that there is no sin that Christ can't redeem. It's blasphemy to believe otherwise. Now, I'm not saying I know the state of this man's soul, but what I do know is that we can herald that the blood of Christ is sufficient for any sin. Believe upon His name. Trust in Him. Run to Him. Know that He is enough in every area of your life. Sin has no sway over our Savior. So to come to this verse and to start to say, I bet you the sin leading to death is adultery or murder or envy or pride, or whatever, is to say this list of sin is sin that Christ can't overcome. And beloved, I don't believe that. I believe that God in His mercy, by His sovereign will and the power of His Spirit alone, can heal us from all of our infirmities. He can restore us from being absolute, abject, failures, sinners, people that deserve wrath. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he says, 
Oh, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And the wonderful thing about what John is telling us here is that when Paul tells us, you have been sanctified, John stands in the corner and says, and God uses the prayers of the saints to get you there. And we all bow before His throne being thankful for that reality. Friends, there will be sin in this life. We will be sinned against by people that we love dearly. We will be discouraged by brothers we thought were godly and their character proves otherwise. Sins of all sorts. But none of those sins can separate the true believer from Christ. The sin unto death then is that which crucifies Christ afresh And it says that He is not the Savior. It says that His blood shed upon the cross is not the only way. And that He alone is not sufficient. That is the sin leading to death. Blaspheming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. All sin short of that can be prayed for with agony. With groaning. And with confrontation. Friends, I think part of what John has done here, in closing, I want you to see this. John has been giving us assurance. He wants us to know that we belong to Him. He wants us to be confident before the throne of God. He wants us to go before the throne of God for our own spiritual needs, but also for the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ. And in that beginning, getting to this point, He has told us that the fourfold test of knowing whether or not we are assured of salvation is do we love God? Do we love the church of God? Do we guard the commandments of God? Come on, Jay. I knew I was going to do that. And do we love the truth and theology? Do we love God? Do we love the the church? Do we love the truth? Are we growing in the truth? And do we guard the commandments of God? Those are the four things that we constantly must be praying over. And remember, we talked about how how we don't, if we want to know if we love God, we don't just say, well, yeah, I love God. That's presumptuous. We look and see, do I love the truth? Do I guard the commands? And do I love my neighbor? And that'll answer the question of whether or not we love God. But at the end of the day, in Paul and John listing before us, those things that would give us assurance, do you know what He's also done for us? He's given us our prayer list for all of the saints. He's called us to pray that we would grow in our love for God. That we would pray for one another. That we would grow as a body to, to love one another. That we would be a church that is kind of uneasy when someone says, well, theology doesn't matter. Because we've prayed for one another. And God in His mercy, by His Spirit alone, has grown us in that. And that we become a church that don't look at the commands, the imperatives of Scripture lightly, but we look at all of them with a desire to bring honor and glory to Almighty God. So can I pray for you in that vein now?
Father God, we come into your presence and we're thankful to know that the blood of Christ is sufficient. Father, we also know that we're all born in iniquity, spiritually dead, and that apart from your grace, apart from the regenerating power of your Spirit, opening our blinded spiritual eyes and our stony hearts to the wonders of Christ, we would never run to you. So Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know Jesus, we pray that you would do a miraculous thing and save them by your grace and for your glory. For those of us who are in Christ today, Father, we come before you seeking to be obedient to verse 16. Everyone that was here today looked at a man on the stage that's a sinner. But I thank you, knowing that save for the blood of Christ, I don't sin unto death. So I pray, Father, for the entire body that that we would become people who guard Your commandments. That more and more we would be people who love Your truth and we love theology and we want clarity in the words that we speak about what we mean about the Gospel. I pray, Father, for that grace. I pray that You would give us a sweetness of spirit in this place. That we would be drawn together as brothers and sisters in Christ, bearing one another's burdens. And when we see each other sinning, that we don't attack one another, but that we pray for one another and seek to build one another up in love and confront in a way that is redemptive. Father, we pray all of these things because we seek to glorify You. And the glory that comes into our lives comes only when we love You well. And so, Father, I pray that You would make each individual here who has been called according to Your purpose under Your sovereign will by Your kindness, I pray that You would make their heart hunger and thirst for You and for nothing else. Do you make that true in the lives of these precious saints that belong to you by the blood of Jesus and in my life also? In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing about the home that we are looking forward to. Almost home. Don't drop the single anchor. We're all.